Welcome, everyone, to podcast number three of The Higher Calling. Today we are reviewing Hebrews chapter three, and some key points we are discussing include starting and hopefully finishing the entire chapter, Jesus our High Priest, some definitions of sin, and unity with all godly people through salvation. We left off in our last episode talking through chapter 2 of the book of Hebrews, discussing how Jesus suffered on the cross for us and defeated death so that all mankind can live eternally. And I'm David Doughty. And I'm Nick Berenger. All right. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, Consider the Apostle and High Priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. So before we get too much further, we need to have some definitions. The author is addressing some people that he calls holy brethren. Chapter 2 taught us that Jesus Christ became our brother in the flesh. He experienced our humanity firsthand. Now, there is a new concept built on that. And we are not just brethren in the sibling sense, but now holy brethren in the spiritual sense. Well, what is holiness? This is translated from the Greek word hagios. And of course, I'm not going to pronounce that properly, but it means an amazing thing, sacred, physically pure, morally blameless, or ceremonially consecrated, a holy saint. So now we are getting more of a picture of who the audience is that the author is talking to. It can't be dead people because the author has verbs of action here, asking the audience to consider the persona of Christ Jesus. Dead people aren't going to even be reading this book. And by faith, we are interpreting it as not mere poetry and metaphor. So he's speaking to live present people who are holy brethren. Also, as holy brethren, the audience is individually and collectively, quote, partakers of the heavenly calling, unquote, which by no accident is the origin of the name of our podcast. This is a very important aspect and rich in context. So what is the heavenly calling that the holy brethren are partaking in? Well, It's an invitation that has been accepted. We know that the Bible in interpretation can't contradict itself. So we can go to another location that explains particularly what this calling is. And we'll find that in Philippians chapter 3. And it's going to make this session a little bit longer, but that's okay. Philippians is a letter authored by Paul again. And chapter 3 starts off by comparing physical rituals of religion to spiritual rituals. And he says, quote, We are the circumcision which worship God in the spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh, unquote. So circumcision was one of the primary physical ways to determine if anyone was a practicing Jew because Greeks and other Gentiles did not practice the ritual of circumcision. And it was part of the early church discussion if Christ's followers still needed to follow that ritual. 
ultimately it was determined that physically and outwardly, no. Well, why is that? And who decided that it was going to be okay to no longer require that ritual? Well, a little homework. You can go out on your own and read through the book of Acts. It tells the story of the first Christians and how they received inspiration of God through signs and visions and how individuals such as Peter and Paul, the early church leaders, were instructed to teach these things to the first congregations and memorialize them in written texts. And so through all of that journey, a Christian did need to have what they called a, quote, circumcision of the heart, unquote, which simply meant that their religion was a condition of the presence of forgiven sins, along with a public confession of belief in Christ's name. Whatever you did to your body as a sign of dedication to God did not necessarily mean that it happened to your moral character, where it mattered the most. Paul continues in chapter 3 of Philippians to explain that he indeed had every right to claim himself a superior outward Jew due to his parentage and his religious persuasion uh, because he was a Pharisee, which meant he had strict observance of the rites and ceremonies of the written law. So in every possible outward ritual or physical expression, he was a Jew and should have every right to claim a position as chosen of God. So if you recall, we started out in podcast one and talked through Paul's amazing conversion to Christianity. And here in Philippians 3, he explains right away that those physical religious rituals and works meant nothing to him. And he counts them as loss. And because those were tokens of personal righteousness, not godly righteousness, he feels circumcision of the heart was more important. So a quick recap, a partaker of the heavenly calling isn't someone who follows the Mosaic law. Rather, this person has had a conversion of moral character and has received salvation. And then brethren are only considered brethren if they all have received salvation and that none of them have let any of these things go. Like, again, we talked about in podcast two. We are sure of this definition with beyond a shadow of a doubt because Paul continues to explain in Philippians 3 that righteousness, which is of God, has two parts. Part one is power of his resurrection. Part two is fellowship of his sufferings and conformable unto his death. So this fellowship is what we talked about. There's partnership and communion between Jesus and everyone else who can also say that they have experienced the thing that he calls the resurrection of the dead. And it is a funny phrase. Resurrection means brought to life and dead means, well, dead, not alive. So this is what Christians describe as born again, dead to the world and sinful actions and alive in newness of life in Christ Jesus. And you can read Romans chapter 6, which goes into even more detail. All right, so quick story time. I know we're several minutes here into the podcast and still not out of verse 1, but just hang, hang in there. 
we mentioned that the righteousness of God contains two things, the power of his resurrection and fellowship of his sufferings, being conformable unto his death. And we just discussed the fellowship. Now let's discuss this idea of having power. I recently had a young man come to my door, and he belonged to a local Southern Baptist church, and he was exercising his evangelical calling of knocking on doors and inviting different ones to experience salvation. He wanted to make sure that I had received salvation. Very noble of him. And naturally, I mentioned that, yes, indeed, I had been saved. And I further asked him about his salvation. If there was any possible way to ensure that he would make it to heaven. Well, he had a script prepared for me. And he related to me that, no, there was no possible way to lose the gift of salvation. That even if one were saved from drug addiction and went back into their old life of substance abuse, they still would not have lost their salvation. Okay, this is a prime example of how a modern-day religious message has let things slip. So trying to break in here again, trying to rope back these ideas to the idea of being holy, which the first verse that we still haven't left yet is talking about. It says, wherefore, holy brethren, um, we, we define holy as something that is morally blameless. That's pretty good, easy definition of being holy. And an example of something that's not holy, we can look pretty quickly to Proverbs 6 and 17. It gives three examples very quickly. Proud look, lying tongue, and hands that have shed innocent blood. One, two, three, really easy. Um, as under the Mosaic Law, these are things that would require a penalty. And you'd have to receive forgiveness via a sacrifice. Um, and so let's let's get an idea and and we really want to nail down this idea about being holy and and conversely about not being holy so is confidence is that pride is is there a distinction to be made there and of course it could definitely be and oftentimes well definitely confidence can be pride uh and it depends on the attitude of an individual when they're presenting that thing or that concept that he or she is confident in but if you have something correct and you've made a proper decision after being confident in the correct decision, uh, you're not being proud or sinful. So what about a proud look? Okay. The most fashionable style exposing just the right amount of skin and body curves, the hair fixed in just the right way, the body language sending the message, hey, look at me. Of course, that could be sin. And we know that isn't humble, it's not modest, it's not even decent. So what about a lying tongue? Going down the list here. Lying is the intention to deceive. So let's say you present a concept with confidence to a friend and you end up being incorrect. For example, you instructed your friend to turn left instead of right. 
your friend got lost and gave up tr without trying your your favorite uh, burger restaurant for lunch. You had every intention of getting your friend that yummy lunch without deceiving them, but you were wrong. Was that a lie? No, obviously not. What about hands shedding innocent blood? Under the teachings of Jesus, if you hate your brother, it's the same as if you murdered him. So either way, if you hate somebody, it is sin. If you murder somebody, it is sin. That one's maybe the easiest out of all of them. Uh, now, here we aren't when we're t when we're talking about murder, we aren't talking about self-defense, and we really don't even really want to cover that concept here. But that's not really what we're talking about. Um, but a good question here is 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 an accidental homicide is that sin? So you're driving in a heavy rain or snow or whatever, and you lose control of your vehicle. And you, you end up going into a head-on collision with another person and they die. Well, here on earth, the judge would probably rule that that was an involuntary manslaughter. But is that sin? No. I think the answer is no with that. And we can case in point, point to James 4.17. Therefore, to him that knoweth to do good, and doeth it not to him, it is sin. If you know to do good and you do so, you haven't sinned. And so this is actually a place, uh, this is actually a place where modern religion has dropped the ball big time. They don't give any hope to the addict. It doesn't give any hope to the addict that can be freed. They give no hope to the devil possessed individual that they can live righteously. They give no hope to that lustful uh, individual that they can live a clean life be confident without being proud be an example of the believers by dressing modest and live a careful sober godly life there is a heavenly calling and the power to live that way is not only offered by god through salvation but also it is a requirement to conclude this thought, we quickly read the words of Jesus Christ himself. We look to Matthew here, uh, Matthew uh, 7 and 21. So it reads like this. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, should enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven. Many will say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And have we not cast out devils? And in thy name done many wonderful works. Then I will profess unto them, I never even knew you. Depart from me, ye that worketh iniquity. So make no mistake. This is not some fancy poetry or metaphor uh, or an example of something, something else. This is speaking of not just God's church here on earth, but also in heaven itself. Simply eating a wafer or drinking a cup every Sunday will not get you into heaven. just finished up here Philippians chapter 3. Paul says that he keeps a mindset of having a strong desire to continue reaching forth to the prize. Because if he lets himself feel like he already has it, he's worried it won't be important enough to finish out what he's doing. And verse 14 says, 
I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God. And that's what we're talking about. Verse 15 says, let us therefore as many as be perfect. Uh, And this word perfect means complete in mental and moral character. And as many therefore as be perfect have the same mindset. Look, we all know that modern day religion doesn't know what to do with this word perfect. And we just talked about Southern Baptist, but seriously, consider this. Mormon, Lutheran, Catholic, Nazarene, all of these, one way or another, teach you that you cannot be perfect. Paul says that there are some who are not perfect, who are not complete in mental and moral character. And he's referencing these evil workers that have let some things slip. And in verse 18 here, it talks about them, quote, even thinking about them, he is weeping, unquote. And it is so emotional that when we have this fellowship with someone, this sweet unity of salvation in Jesus Christ, and something horrible happens, and we talked about this in podcast two, how we need to give them more earnest heed, lest at any time we should let it slip. It is so sad when somebody does that and they aren't with Christ anymore. They don't have the power of the resurrection because their salvation had become tarnished with sin and and they had lost that ability to have unity with Christ and unity with everyone else who are holy brethren. And they can't win the prize unless they confess and forsake their sin and renew, as it says in Revelations, the first works again. Okay, let's finish this last verse in Philippians 3. Paul explains that the prize is that we get to heaven, and that is the greatest joy. The entire purpose of the heavenly calling is that the conditions are met to allow us to live in heaven eternally when our life is over. Okay, so here we go. We discussed being holy, being brethren, and being partakers of the heavenly calling. So moving on here in Hebrews chapter 3. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him that appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in all his house, For this man was counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who hath builded the house hath more honor than the house. For every house is builded by some man, but he that builds all things is God. So let us consider this man called Jesus Christ. We need to remember that Jesus lived his entire life holy. Yes, he died on the cross for our sins. That is not the sole focus of our Christian walk. Jesus isn't still dead. He rose from the grave. He is alive. We must remember that he was holy, and we need to follow his example and be holy through the power salvation gives us over sins. Like it says in 1 Peter 1, verses 15 and 16, But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. And we know this word conversation 
means the way we conduct our life. Living without sin every day is a directive from heaven. Jesus walked this earth for 33 years and never once sinned. He expects us to live this way as well. Back in verse 2 of Hebrews chapter 3, the faithfulness of Moses was contrasted to the faithfulness of Jesus. And it was emphasized that Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses. And to help bring that into perspective, some of Moses' accomplishments are he was raised as an Egyptian prince. He was called by God to deliver the Israelites from those Egyptians. So he forsook his, as it says, the pleasures of sin for a season. And he was faithful to deliver the Israelites from Pharaoh. He brought the message of God down to Pharaoh and said, let my people go. And when Pharaoh declined to do so, Moses led the children of Israel out of Egypt through the mighty power of God, through the wilderness. And while he was in the wilderness, he received and pronounced the law of God. So, yes, there is that comparison between Moses and Christ. And it references this passage from Numbers chapter 12 and verse 7. My servant Moses is not so, who is faithful in all mine house. Well, there was a situation going on where God had to defend Moses against the other people in the Israelite camp who were persecuting him for marrying someone they didn't approve of. Well, God spoke directly on behalf of Moses with the testimony that Moses was conducting himself appropriately in the temple or God's house. And Jesus was compared to this. And all of the holy brethren together in unity are the house or temple or church, as we read in other places in the New Testament. So, verse 5 and 6 now in Hebrews chapter 3. And Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after. But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house are we, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. So, back to Hebrews chapter 3, verses 5 through 11. And Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after. But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house are we, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, today if... Ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts, as in the provocation, in the day of temptation in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works forty years. Wherefore I was grieved with that generation, and said, They do always err in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. Okay. 
we know what happened to Aaron and his sister Miriam, where, where we referenced in the book of Numbers. Miriam was punished by contracting leprosy, which was an extremely unclean disease. And Moses prayed for her healing. And keep this in mind as we read the next few verses. Verse 12, Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. This is something that I think a lot of people, myself included, have had to grapple with in, in their life, in their you know Christian experience. And it's something like when you come face to face with something that threatens to derail everything that you've been taught growing up is is what mom and dad believe correct is that what i ought to also believe and be lockstep with my parents and so so the question is if god comes and shed shed some light onto your path which happens to be contrary to whatever mom and dad believe what do you do with that do you disregard what mom and dad believe? Do you say, sorry, mom, sorry, dad, you know, this is what I'm going to do? Or do you disregard the light that God shows you? And, I'll, you know, the answer is seems obvious, uh, but when, when you're right in the middle of that and you're right in the midst of the, the, the questions, uh, it's actually really difficult to convince yourself to leave what mom and dad have believed, to leave tradition. Because what is right? This idea that you feel is coming from God and just in your mind, you feel that way or what your parents, your pastor, your favorite um, evangelist, right? Um, what what they're saying is perhaps different. So what do you do? It's, it's a really challenging thought, actually. So the author, again, calls to his audience, brethren, lest there be any of you of an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. So again, it's possible to depart. Salvation is a conditional thing that one must guard as a precious item, a treasure hid in a field worth selling all to purchase, a pearl of great price. and verse 14 here in Hebrews chapter 3 then. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we are made partakers of Christ, if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. So if here is a conditional item, and we've read it like three or four times in the last few verses, well, remember I spoke earlier of that young man who knocked on my door? Well, one of the scriptures he used to help support his point that salvation could not be lost was John chapter 6, verse 37, which says, and this is Jesus speaking here, quote, 
All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. Unquote. Okay, this is true. When we come to God desiring repentance, having godly sorrow, turning away from our sins, he is faithful and will not thrust us out. That's the good news of salvation. There's no particular criteria of type of person who can get saved. There's no discrimination with God, with rich or poor, color of skin, background, education. God is faithful and calls all men to repentance. And Jesus will not thrust us out. But it doesn't stop there. And Jesus' own words are recorded in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 and 23. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. So this is in perfect symmetry with the Old Testament. Proverbs 28 verse 13 says, He that covereth his sins shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. We must forsake sin to find that mercy. So back to Hebrews chapter 3, verses 15 through 19 now. While it is said today, if ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation. For some, when they had heard, did provoke. Howbeit not all that came out of Egypt by Moses. But with whom was he grieved forty years? Was it not with them that had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? And to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that believed not? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. And these scriptures refer not just to Miriam and Aaron, who were persecuting Moses because of who he had married, but also um, the many, many countless Israelites that mumbled and complained for lack of food and lack of water, or the spies that went into the Canaan land and came back with a bad report, um, or Korah and his followers. And there's just a long laundry list of individuals who were part of this provo provocation that God, God said that they should not enter into his rest. And these scriptures are completely and totally applicable to our human condition. You can go back and read the story of the exodus from Egypt. Once God delivered them from slavery and opened the waters of the Red Sea and rescued them by a great miracle, it wasn't too long before they began to murmur and complain. They complained about lack of food and water, like we said, and instead of approaching God's throne in humility and in submission, and requesting their needs with an attitude of thankfulness, they provoked God to anger 
many, many times, such that the entire first generation out of Egypt were punished to wander until all of them, except Joshua and Caleb, had died. The Calvinist doctrine of once saved, always saved is not found in any of the scriptures. The concept of eternal security is not found in any of the scriptures. And this sets the scene for the next couple of chapters as we look into Jesus being our high priest and our ultimate sacrifice. And let's be clear, we know this podcast is talking about religion, and religion is controversial. We know that there are a hundred and one different ways to interpret the scriptures, and that the way that we are presenting them here is one of the least popular ways. So that is something that we understand. In contrast, Billy Graham, he had a dream. He had a desire to make religion popular for the masses. He was instrumental in taking the traditional ways of living out of the preached word in the pulpit. He was instrumental in taking the teeth out of the judgment found in the scriptures. And there are indeed few that find the narrow way to heaven, largely because of Billy Graham and others like that, that have watered down the preached word. The power in salvation lies in the God-given ability to resist temptation. We can't do it without the Spirit of God. And we can't do it without being zealous of good works. Those both work hand in hand. So, what about you? Are you looking and searching for that way of life that brings fulfillment? I was too. My source of anxiety and unrest came from my guilty conscience. When I asked forgiveness for my sins, that guilty conscience left. And I was able to hear that I didn't have to give in to temptation anymore. I could pray for help and find strength and power to resist. We'll get into it more in the next couple of chapters. But beware the prophet, priest, or preacher that says, Well, we've all been bad kids this week. Let's join together under Jesus' blood and take on Jesus' sacrifice in the humble minds that we couldn't live holy, that he did something none of us are able to do. Look, run far away from that because it, it is clearly not a preached word based in Scripture. Well, with that, we'll wrap up this podcast. It's been a pleasure, and we trust that you found the discussion both challenging and encouraging. Your feedback, discussion, questions, and comments are all welcome. If you have a biblical topic you might want to discuss, or a prayer request, or just need someone to talk to, please email us at biblestudy at avondalecog.org or on Instagram at avondalecog, and we'll be quick to pray for you, reach out to you with encouraging words, or even get in touch with you depending on your specific situation. As always, thank you for listening and have a great day. We'll see you next time here at The Higher Calling.